This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Good evening and welcome. You're watching Fred Paul on ADH TV, filling in for Alan Jones while he's off getting some medical issues dealt with. Well, unless you're in Adelaide, you might not have heard about the 15-year-old child who has confessed to serious terrorism crimes and will now be tried as an adult in order that he might be given a longer prison sentence. The boy hasn't pleaded guilty to the crimes, but has admitted to them as part of a leniency deal. As a juvenile, he would have faced three years for the offences. As an adult, he faces 15. The Adelaide Advertiser reports that the teenager is expected to plead guilty to being a terrorist, possessing extremist material, providing bomb-making instructions to others, and pledging allegiance to Islamic State. The prosecutor in the case told the court that an incident at a juvenile centre last week suggested the kid had been, and remained, radicalised. Western civilization is suffering from several urgent and self-inflicted wounds these days, not least of which is our suicidal plan to destroy our economies by switching to so-called renewable energy. But we should not forget that the whole process could be radically accelerated if the jihadis amongst us get a chance to wage their war, as they've repeatedly reminded us they plan to do for the past 20 years. Now, it goes without saying that not all Muslims seek to destroy infidels. Many devout Muslims are in fact peaceful and pleasant neighbours, which is as it should be in a liberal society. There's also a perfectly rational argument that religious people, Muslim, Christian or otherwise, make better neighbours than atheists, given that they endeavour to comply with a higher morality. I know I'd rather live next door to a bloke who prays five times a day and has a decent sense of humour than an ABC watching Pantyways who reports his neighbours for not separating the recycling from the rubbish. All we should really care about is, do they share our values and, within reason, can they refrain from breaking our laws? This is possibly not the case with the women and children who were brought back to Australia from Syria this week. DFAT and Home Affairs officials flew to Syria last week to collect the four women and 14 kids from the Al Roj refugee camp in Syria, where they have been for almost four years. The women went there to be with men who were fighting against, and I can't say that clearly enough, against Western forces, including Australians, to establish a Stone Age Islamic State in Syria. They are only returning to Australia because they failed in that noble quest and most of their menfolk were killed. All levels of government in Australia, including Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's then Labor opposition, supported locking law-abiding Australians out of their own country during the COVID pandemic. But these women, who voluntarily joined forces against Western liberalism, are given the red carpet treatment to return. Should the children be brought home, though? Well, not if they have already been taught to despise our values and freedoms. Here is footage of kids in a Syrian refugee camp revealing their attitude towards women. Okay, 
We will kill you. Who's teaching these kids this stuff? The government has displayed a contempt for ordinary Australians by shrouding this whole operation in secrecy. The Australian reported on the weekend, quote, the federal government was tight-lipped about the repatriation, with Home Affairs unhappy details of it had leaked before the families were back in Australia, unquote. Bureaucrats in your government are supposedly unhappy that you were told about something that potentially threatens your security. That's a bit odd, don't you think? But never mind, your security is the government's primary concern. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said, quote, we will always act in a way that keeps Australians safe. That is our objective and that is what we will do, unquote. Just don't expect to be told about it, that's all. Shadow Minister for Immigration Dan Tian says two of the women have husbands still in the camp in Syria and asks, is the plan for them to be brought back as well? It's a good question. He also said another woman earmarked for repatriation had already had her Australian citizenship revoked. If this is true, shouldn't we be told about this? And wouldn't the recent election campaign have been a good time to do that? Tian added, quote, the Australian people need to know what the Australian government is up to and how what they are doing is in Australia's national interest. Well, meanwhile, in our public service, time clock punches are reportedly easing up on crooks coming into the country. The Sydney Morning Herald reports today that, quote, federal government agencies have allowed migration agents to keep operating despite repeated warnings about their role in rotting the visa system that is misused by organised crime gangs involved in human trafficking and worker exploitation, unquote. Well, porous borders are like honey to terrorists. Five Republican United States senators wrote to the Homeland Security Secretary in August saying that the open border with Mexico was giving terrorists an opportunity to enter the US freely. 56 people who were on the terrorist screening database had been apprehended in only nine months. And they were just the ones who were caught. Might the same be happening in Australia? We don't know. And the secretive nature of the government suggests we are unlikely to find out. But at least we can rely on the justice system. In October last year, the first person to be convicted of leading a terror group in Australia, Abdul Nasser Banbrika, had his application for release rejected. Banbrika led a group of 17 men who in the mid-2000s were planning various terror attacks, including on the AFL Grand Final in 2005. I remember that Grand Final, when the Sydney Swans broke a 72-year premiership drought, because I was there with my dad and my two young sons. How anyone would want to attack such an amazing occasion is absolutely beyond me. Ben Breaker was convicted in 2008 and sentenced to 15 years in prison. His sentence expired in 2020. But after an appeal from the then Home, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, based on concerns about Ben Breaker's continued radicalisation and hatred of Western liberalism, he remains at His Majesty's, His Majesty's leisure. These are not normal crimes, and the people who commit them are not normal criminals. I hope the new federal government agrees. Well, last night I mentioned that leftists around the world were incandescent with rage after being exposed 
to opposing opinions on Twitter. Now that the platform is owned and run by free speech evangelist Elon Musk. Many threatened to leave, but didn't because, you know, where else are they going to find such massive numbers of people to shower them in the attention they crave? The problem is, what if evil conservatives like Donald Trump and Kanye West are allowed back on Twitter? Well, an alternative social media site called Tribal, that's T-R-I-B-E-L, has found the solution. Let's get social media habitue Alexandra Marshall in to tell us all about it. Alexandra, welcome. Well, technically I'm a fandom queen of social media, but it's <laughs> lovely to be here today. You're always there when I turn up, so uh, I'll, call you, uh, I'll call you a local then. Anyway, Alexandra, Tribal has found a way to attract leftists who crave attention, but can't bear the thought of sharing a platform with the orange man, Trump. What did the geniuses at Tribal do? Well, first of all, the blue tick Democrats of uh, Twitter keep saying that they're going to leave and yet they're still here, Fred. They won't go. They've got all these people crying over them and they and they will not leave. But this new platform, Tribal, has promised to be a safe space for these poor creatures. And they're saying that they value truth and democracy and freedom. And so the first thing that Tribal did was preemptively ban Donald Trump and Elon Musk before they joined. So the pro-democracy site has banned accounts that don't even exist yet. And just quietly on the side, Elon Musk and Donald Trump were not trying to join Tribal. I mean, Tribal's been around for about a year and it's tiny. No one's interested in it as a platform. Well, and the they... funny thing is I went on there. Uh, I went on there just for a second to see what it was like. And this loving and peaceful environment is full of people trying to block everything and being <laughs> frustrated they can't have a lovely little quiet safe space to themselves. What sort of things were they blocking? The first thing they tried to block was Christianity and they were absolutely horrified that there were Christian tweets. Well, I call them tweets. I don't know what the equivalent is on tribal, but there were Christian comments popping up on their climate change rhetoric. And they were trying to work out how to get rid of Christianity out of climate change, which I think is my favorite problem so far. Yeah, well, it's nothing worse than backing a pagan religion and having Christians comment about it. Anyway, did they preemptively ban the Taliban and the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini as well, Alexandra? I'm actually surprised they didn't send out a mass invite to all of their mates in the uh, terror organisations they seem to support. Where was the gays for Pakistan and uh, sorry, gays for Palestine? And where are those invites coming out? I mean, the Democrats have to get on this if they want to have a truly inclusive and supportive platform. <laughs> but the problem with tribal is. As soon as they, it's, it's run by the guys from Occupy Democrats. And as soon as they started promoting their platform, uh, people dragged up their terms of service. And it's just been this hilarious takedown of these Democrats who are still on Twitter, by the way. All their advertising is done on Twitter, not on tribal. So oh, Elon Musk is laughing all the way to the bank. What were the terms of service? The terms is, I don't know if you've got it there for my article as a quote, but it was basically like we own all of your posts forever into the, you know, the end of time and we can do whatever we want with them, edit them, sell them a lot. It was hilarious. It was not very free or safe or democratic. It was hilarious. And uh, so they changed that and um, tribal were like, oh, well, we didn't really read what our lawyer wrote for the terms of service. So, you know, our bad. I'd love to know how things went to print without them reading it. Which brings me to, Fred, I owe you that apology about uh, PayPal. I've been waiting for this. Um, Go on. Yes. I'm sorry, Fred. You are right about PayPal. Everyone delete it. This uh, apparently fake news about wanting to fine people $2,500 that they had no idea how that could get into the print. Well, it's back. They literally put it back two days ago. So they really did mean to fine us for misinformation. So have you cancelled your PayPal account? I'm about to. They, they can't, you, no one can cancel their PayPal account at the moment because it's, it's actually like frozen. You, no one can do it. Yeah, I noticed that. I thought I'd cancelled mine and then, then I got an invoice the other day. It's, it's like some sort of uh, virus that you can't get rid of. 
or it's a, you know, a science like fiction COVID, blob. No amount of social, no <laughs> amount of social distancing will get you out of PayPal. <laughs> Maybe I need a fifth jab to get rid of them. Anyway, th- but just getting back to um, them cancel tribal cancelling Donald Trump and Kanye West and all those other good people from the conservative side of politics. It's interesting that they are now that the left is now cancelling things that don't exist. I mean, do they realise how stupid they look? If you want to have a properly safe space for um, speech, then you have to make sure that you've blocked every conceivable uh, criticism that could come across. So that's why they're blocking these accounts. I mean, the one that I found particularly interesting was Libs of TikTok. Now, people who've been following social media know that Libs of TikTok is an account that basically goes through TikTok and pulls up some of the most insane left-wing thought put out by Democrats and liberals on TikTok and just puts them up for people to see. It doesn't make a judgment call. It just says, hey, look at this crazy stuff. Well, they went over to Tribal just to have a little hunt around. And they posted um, a tweet that said, uh, uh, was it men can't give birth or something to that effect. And Tribal hunted them down and said, we've found your bigotry and your hate speech and we've banned your account straight away because we believe in truth and facts. So (laughs) Tribal's truth and facts are that men definitely can give birth. So Uh it gives you an idea of this is what the world looks like if you allow the left to control it. And I mean, one thing it certainly isn't is a a shrine to truth and facts. That's for sure. Yeah, we can laugh about it, but it is actually frightening just how, how immune these people are to the truth that, you know, they can claim the opposite of the truth as a fact. It's, uh, you know, Orwell did warn us about it, but uh, it's all coming true. Well, it's all fun and games on social media, Fred, when you can watch these people go into a a spin and create these dystopian platforms. But we have to remember that these people want to control our speech in politics, in the real world, in our companies, in our our, uh, schools and education systems. And so if you look at what they want to do to social media, that's what they want our entire existence to look like, this a shrine to everything that is activist pro and uh, facts and truth don't matter unless they're politically aligned and no one with a dissenting thought is allowed to speak. Do we really want our companies and our schools to look this way and our politics to be this way? Because that's where it's heading. So it's all fun for us to joke, but I, I really advise people to understand that this is where our politics is heading once it escapes social media. Well, that's very well and very passionately said, I've got to say, and there's just not enough voices saying that these days. Now, let's talk about HSBC because this is perfectly related to what you just said. HSBC is, of course, the uh, one of the world's biggest banks. Now, here at ADH, not HSBC, but ADH, we, we, know that, we know that most corporate claims to environmental virtue are just marketing in an era when environmentalism is the key driver to sales and clients. So we weren't surprised, Alexandra, when international banking giant HSBC sacked one of its executives last year for the heresy of speaking the truth about environmental catastrophism. But then again, neither were we surprised to learn this week that HSBC had been busted, exaggerating its claim to environmental sainthood. As Orwell warned, you can hold opposing opinions at the same time. Alexandra, tell us what the story is here and have HSBC executives been throwing themselves from the executive suites in response to this humiliation? I think it might have actually been June or July this year, if memory serves, where uh, one of their chief executives went on this hilarious rant. It was clearly somebody who had just been pushed too far and couldn't lie any longer. And so he got up in front of this big conference and just threw climate change rhetoric into the shredder live in front of everyone the bank had invited. And he called the climate change uh people inside his own company nut jobs and i mean well done and and what he really did is he said there's no uh, no one can actually prove why we would charge more because of some climate threat it's just basically as you said marketing and so that was step one when when this happens hsbc and of course he was investigated and fired and but i mean it was worth it what a what a way to go out mate i mean 100 percent, you were a 
just a great, great culture war figure. Anyway, the fallout from this is HSBC has had to sort of rebrand and preserve its and recover its image. And so it's been putting out these climate ads. And it's basically saying to the world, we're a bank, but we're saving the world quite literally and changing the climate if you bank with us, which is, of course, nonsense. And so what happened was the UK regulator said, yeah, that's nonsense, warned them, took the ads down, fined them and said, you do it again, you're going to be in serious trouble. Now, you, you can laugh at one bank, but the, the point is, Almost every company in the in, a, in the world right now across the West is pretending that if you shop with them, you're saving the planet. Now, that is misleading advertising. If they want to save the planet, they can shut their businesses down and stop expending carbon units, selling us stuff we don't need. I mean, it's like the sports stars. Do they really yeah. need to be doing that career? No. Uh, and so... <laughs> I'd like to see more advertising uh, boards actually call out these companies on their cultural woke virtue signaling because they're not saving the planet. They're just trying to make money off people who have been conned. Yeah. Well, I, when they're exposed, I'm actually more inclined to do business with them because it means they're, uh, you know, at heart, they, uh, they don't believe any of this rubbish. But interestingly, in 2021, HSBC published its own net zero timeline and demanded clients, quote, publish transition plans that are compatible with HSBC's net zero by 2050 target, unquote. Now, that's a bit didactic, isn't it? I mean, how do you, how do you tell your clients that you have to conform to this environmental rubbish. It's, is, is, it, is it go the, work, go broke in this instance, Alexandra? The clients, the clients should tell the bank that they'll do that and fill out these stupid forms when all of the executives at the bank promise to stop flying around the world in their private jets and driving all the lovely cars they like and living in mansions. Because why should the, the customers do anything if the bank executives don't believe a word of what they're putting in print. Because all we're doing, this climate saga, is literally expanding the gap between the super wealthy and everybody else. And uh, so much of this close the gap scenario, that's exactly the opposite to what is happening here. But what's interesting, Fred, is when I spoke about PayPal before, I think I cautioned on your program last time that we're seeing ideology being allowed in banking institutions online because the rules are a bit fast and loose. Well, companies like PayPal were the catalyst to influence people like HSBC to now play politics with your money in real banks because nobody stopped anybody online doing it. And so because we didn't stop PayPal, we've now got HSBC and other banks. I mean, my Commonwealth Bank, it's sending me carbon footprints and tracking stuff. And I don't want to know. It's none of their business. Stop looking at my purchases. It's, you know, they shouldn't be stalking their customers and making value judgments on what they purchase. That is scary stuff. Well, just to put a more optimistic spin on it, that, that condition that HSBC published in, in 2021, the, the, the transgressions that HSBC have made since then would indicate to me that in fact, it is difficult to maintain these lines, that if you want to stay profitable, then you don't, you can't, you simply can't kowtow to all this environmental rubbish. Is that a, is that a positive well, way of looking at it? Well, there won't be a choice. These companies and these banks will have no option because as we've seen in Europe, when there is a, a genuine energy crisis. And we have to remember the climate cult is like a religion, but the energy system that underpins it is a is an engineering reality. So as we realize that renewables do not uphold an energy grid, well, then we have to uh, go back to fossil fuels and nuclear energy. There's no choice. And so the banks will no longer be able to work virtue signal because People don't want to have no power and no money and no businesses, and they will leave people who start promoting it. And you'll, you'll see, you watch it, right? You'll see in the banks, they'll be like, oh, nuclear power is now the most virtuous energy you've ever seen. Bank with us and we'll invest everything in nuclear power. That'll be their line in a year or two because it's the only way forward that Europe has out of this mess they're in. So everyone's going to have to shift because of reality. Uh, and it just exposes the idea this climate cult has been nothing but a, a marketing experiment for some billionaires to profit off their share portfolios. It has had nothing to do with save, play, saving the planet. And you're right, it is go work, go broke. Yep. 
Well, you know, you say that reality is going to come. It can't come quick enough for mine. Anyway, I mentioned earlier in my editorial, Alexandria, Alexandra, that the children raised in refugee camps in Syria have been radicalised. Here is another sample of the video of them threatening to kill a woman for not wearing a hijab. Alexandra, you've been emphatic about the need to keep these kids out of Australia. Should we at least be told where these kids are, who, who were repatriated, I should add, on the weekend? Well, they just shouldn't be here. And of course, Sydney siders have a right to know if someone's imported a pack of terrorists and just landed them in the suburbs. It's completely unacceptable to the safety of Australian citizens. But I've heard online so many times, including from people who should know better, who are in politics, oh, we need to give these women a second chance and all oh, the kids are innocent. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but the parents have actually decided the destiny of these children by having them in a foreign state, a terrorist state, of which his entire purpose was to murder, kill and torture people who were not believers. Their kids who are under 10 were born in this camp and yet they have the same ideology as their radicalised fathers who were murdering people over in Syria. So tell me, where did these children get their ideology from if not from the mothers who are now saying they're reformed? Indeed. This is coming from the mothers who left there voluntarily to join this terror cult. It was not a secret when they left. And to say, oh, some of them were teenagers, they're 18 and 19. And if you can sit a high school exam, you're capable of understanding that you're joining a terrorist organisation. I'm sorry. This infantilising of women as if they're not responsible for their actions has got to stop. They are female terrorists, not ISIS brides, and they've been brought back into Australia to the risk of every other law-abiding person in the city who don't deserve to have this put next door to them so that Labor can virtue signal to their Greens mates. It is disgusting. And just quickly before you go, do you think the government's going to bring back more of them? Of course they will. Labor is fulfilling the desires of all their so-called human rights campaigners, bringing these terrorists back into the country. Human rights campaigners who didn't say a word when poor, hard-working Australians were being ostracised by the government during COVID. We live in a complete madhouse here in Australia, and this is a step too far. No one is happy about this. You read the comments in line, people are furious with Labor. Well said, Alexandra. Thanks, as always, for your time. Thank you for having me, Fred. That's Alexandra Marshall, whose brilliant writing can be found every day on the Spectator Australia website. Well, remember when you were a kid and the coach of whatever sport you played told you it's not whether you win, but how you play the game that matters. Well, forget all that. Support is no longer about the glory of competition. Crikey, it's not even about winning anymore. It's about turning it into a springboard for the only real game in town, politics. Because while sport is played to specific rules that require dignity and mutual respect between opponents, politics is a free-for-all where rat cunning is the only tactic. And the prize? Well, if you asked Dan Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, you'd have to say it was to be crowned the most woke bloke in town. During the lockdown, Andrews did what most people thought was impossible. He evicted the biggest annual event in Melbourne, the AFL Grand Final, for two years, forcing two successive pairs of Victorian football teams to fly interstate to play the biggest game of their lives in front of a crowd of relatively disinterested spectators. Were Dan's woke fans mad? Hell no! They loved him for it! He was keeping them safe, you see. Andrews was at it again this week when he threw a lazy $15 million of money borrowed on the taxpayer's account at the, at the national netball team, the Diamonds after the team rejected a similar amount from mining magnate Gina Reinhart on the grounds that her father was racist. Let's be honest, Andrews doesn't care about the national netball team. Hardly anybody does. He just wants to score a goal against Reinhardt, 
whose resource mining operations are anathema to his plan to switch Victoria over to the more woke forms of energy, wind and solar. And Dan slotted it too, straight through the middle from outside 50 to borrow a phrase from a slightly more exciting sport. That's if you believe what the ABC says about the deal anyway. Reinhardt's offer was specifically to go towards expenses incurred by the diamonds themselves, not the sports administrators. On the other hand, Dan Andrews's deal, according to the ABC, is to quote, promote netball at the elite level while delivering community initiatives to encourage grassroots participation in the sport, particularly in culturally diverse communities, unquote. Take that, Gina. Dan's got the culturally diverse demographic in the bag. But the ABC wasn't done yet, quote, key figures within netball and various marketing experts independent to the sport have told the ABC the deal is a smart move. The experts also suggested that this deal was less about relying on government sponsorship as much as it was proving that sport and politics can and should mix, unquote. Well, hold the front page. Anonymous expert tells ABC journalists the government needs to spend more of your money on woke projects. If only the ABC and Dan, for that matter, were this enthusiastic about us going out and getting some exercise this time last year. Now, each Tuesday night, Alan speaks with our terrific US correspondent, Peggy Grandy. She's the former executive assistant to President Ronald Reagan, and her book, The President Will See You Now, is available online at Booktopia. You can find it by Googling the title. But with the midterm elections due next Tuesday, I thought it was vital to cross to Peggy to see what the latest news is. Peggy, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on tonight, Fred. It's a privilege. Before we get to the election stuff, it's just been revealed that Joe Biden got a bit cranky with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky in June when he thought Zelensky wasn't being grateful enough for the billions of dollars worth of military and humanitarian aid the US was sending him. Apparently the two have made up since then, but Peggy, is Biden starting to realize that the American people are getting tired of funding the Democrats' wars? Well, perhaps he's echoing some frustration um, from the American people, but it's not that we don't want to support Ukraine. Of course we do. We want to defend their sovereignty. We appreciate that they're on the front lines pushing back against Russia and Putin, but we also want accountability. The American people are very generous, and so they want to continue funding, but do so with accountability. But as for Joe Biden getting testy or getting angry, that's not something that's surprising to us at all. We've We've seen it many times. We've seen it actually with reporters live on air. And interestingly enough, we've seen Joe Biden get testy and angry with voters when he was campaigning. And so Indeed. I don't think that's a winning strategy. But if you remember, Joe Biden was touted as being this great unifier, this peacemaker, the best diplomat that America has ever seen. And certainly none of that has proven to be true. And this is just the latest in a long string of unsurprising and very disappointing actions coming out of our president. He's increasingly temperamental, though, isn't he? he I mean, he was known previously as a reasonably even-tempered man. Well, that was always the reputation and the line that was out there. But those who had worked behind the scenes with him and knew Joe Biden well actually knew that there was this temper and this streak behind him. And so just the few times that we've seen it on camera, apparently those are magnified behind the scenes and have been for years. And now we're seeing somebody who's really struggling cognitively. And so I think we're seeing more of this coming out and we'll probably see more to come. Yeah, well, that's something to look forward to. Now, just getting back to the Ukraine war, <laughs> has, has Joe Biden ever expressed any exit strategy or specific objective in this for the US involvement in the war in Ukraine? 
Well, in fact, he's done the exact opposite. And he said, we're in this as long as it takes. We will fund this without limit. And, you know, it's been a lot of people in Congress who have said, whoa, 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 let's tap the brakes. Let's have a strategy. Let's have a plan. And like I said, the American people are very generous. They're very sympathetic. They're very appreciative of all that Zelensky and the Ukrainian people are doing to on the front lines against Russia. But you see the struggles that we're having here at home. You see the economic pressure that the American people are under. And so to fund an endless and, um, you know, unending without strategy war in Ukraine, when we're fighting so many wars domestically here at home in different ways, it's really becoming an increasingly difficult sell to the American people. Yeah. Let's get to the domestic situation in a second when we talk about the midterms. But just just still on Zelensky, apparently, what I've read is the problem for Biden was that Zelensky was making his demands too public. Now, do you think that maybe Biden told him what he told the Saudi Arabians regarding oil production, which was to keep any bad news off the front page until after the midterms, after which there'd be less need to care about public opinion? What do you think, Peggy? Well, perhaps, but also maybe he's a little bit jealous that Zelensky is stealing all the limelight and the thunder. You know, Zelensky is the picture right now on the world stage of strength, who's unapologetic and bold, going toe-to-toe with the Russians. And on by contrast, Joe Biden is showing nothing but weakness. And American weakness has in part put Ukraine and other places in the world in the dangerous places that they are in. We know that when there's a vacuum of American leadership and power, we see bullies and tyrants all over the world take advantage of that. And that's exactly what we're seeing. American weakness is breeding opportunities for people like Xi, like Putin, others all around the world to take their opportunity to maximize um, on this this small window of American weakness. It's, but it's not just weakness. I raised this on my show last night because it's actually hilarious, uh, you know, other than being tragic as well. But Biden's latest gaffe was at a campaign event in Pennsylvania where he was talking about how the Republicans wanted to overturn Obamacare. While, he, while speaking, he said America has 54 states. Now, Peggy, that's a very fundamental mistake, not knowing how many states there are in the union. How is he even able to run the country? Well, there's some who say he isn't and are wondering who is um, because that person or people are unelected and unaccountable. But to your point about these gaffes, and some of them actually are in the teleprompter, which is not, there's that's not excusable at all. But we've seen not only the 54 states, that's not the only time he's referred to America as having more than 50 states, but Last week, he wished his vice president, Kamala Harris, a happy birthday by referring to her as the president. He's also called her the first lady. A week or so ago in a speech, he said, I will begin by with two words, made in America. <laughs> and we've seen him mumble and mix up words. We've seen him lose thought mid-sentence. We've seen him turn and shake hands with the air, get lost when he's leaving the stage. And so this is somebody who is in cognitive decline. And just like we were talking about with the previous segment, you know, this this is dangerous because it would be funny if it was a Saturday Night Live skit, but it's showing American weakness. And our enemies all around the world are taking notice and are taking taking advantage of it. Places like Ukraine, places like Afghanistan, which fell, places like Taiwan, which are now in the crosshairs of China, wouldn't be happening under Donald Trump and certainly wouldn't be happening if Joe Biden was projecting American greatness and leadership, not American weakness. Okay, let's talk about possibly some reasons to be optimistic about the future of American politics, and that's the midterms. The Republicans are almost certain to win a a majority in the House of Representatives, but the question is, will they take the Senate? There are 34 out of 100 seats being contested at this election, and only 14 of them are Democrats. So it's a tough call for the Republicans to get that chamber as well. Now, one Senate seat, however, just got a whole lot easier after the debate between Democrat John Fetterman, who almost died of a stroke only five months ago, and the newly anointed Republican TV star, Dr. Oz. Here's a sample of it. There is that 2018 interview that you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. So how do you square the two? 
I, I I do support fracking, and I don't I don't I support fracking, and I stand and I do support fracking. Peggy, first Joe Biden, now this. How can the Democrat Party seriously put up candidates who are so impaired? Well, it's tragic. And of course, we feel terrible for John Fetterman um, dealing with definitely some bad ramifications from a stroke. And if it was somebody who was already in office, of course, people would maybe be a little more sympathetic. But even the Democrats have come out and said, it's not that he had a stroke, it's that he wasn't transparent about the limitations that he's had. So after watching this, this in essence, this debate was a job interview and the people of Pennsylvania were watching it. And I think in a lot of ways he failed that job interview. And I do think that the people of Pennsylvania will elect Dr. Oz next week and send him to Washington as a result next um, at the beginning of next year. Uh, Tucker Carlson recently said that the United States needs to rethink the way it selects political candidates. Do you agree? <laughs> well, you look at our U.S. military, for instance, you know, people are automatically disqualified from flying a plane if they're colorblind or if they get too old or if they have high blood pressure. You know, there's disqualifications for all kinds of roles and offices all over um, throughout the world. And so maybe it's time that we look at that. Um, you know, some people have proposed term limits. Some people have proposed age limits. I don't know what the answer is, but certainly in roles like this that are so important, so consequential, um, maybe it's time to take a look at that. What's interesting is, you know, the Democrats only bring this up when we put in, let's say, a young Supreme Court justice that has a term for life. Then they raise the fact that, well, maybe we should term limit this, but they're the ones that keep people in the Senate and other places, in yeah. essence, for life. They've got some very old people serving, um, many of which are having cognitive issues and are probably far too, far too old to serve in their current jobs at the level that they were elected to do. Yeah, it's disturbing to watch. In Australia, we have what we call the pub test. That uh, if a, if a character doesn't doesn't pass the the pub test, then they uh, you know they, they don't belong where they are. But somehow doesn't seem to translate into well, election it's losses. Up to the voters. Yeah, it's going to be up to the voters to decide that. And one of the things that's unfortunate in Pennsylvania is John Fetterman successfully pushed off this um, debate until after they estimate maybe you know, 750,000 votes have already been cast in Pennsylvania. And so, you know, a lot of people maybe want to take back that vote, but they can't. And so John Fetterman was very smart to delay that as long as he could, but he couldn't put off the inevitable forever. And it'll be interesting to see what Pennsylvanians do next Tuesday. Are you saying that Dr. Oz will probably win Pennsylvania? I think he probably will. And I think there's overwhelming momentum in his direction. And I think not only Republicans are going to be motivated to get out and vote for him, but I think independents and maybe even some Democrats who were concerned by the debate performance they saw will also turn out and vote for Dr. Oz. So what other Senate seats should we be looking at? And can the Republicans win the Senate, you think? I think we can. And, you know, there's several races that are starting to lean Republican that maybe have not been um, under consideration before. And it's always interesting when you see something that they're maybe calling a red wave or we're going to have a red tsunami. Um, I don't know that it'll be that big of a, a win for the red team, but because it's always so hard and there's still a lot of concerns about are the elections really secure and safe, free and fair? Is it one vote, one person in some of the these states and deep blue cities um, that had so many concerns before. So I think there still is a lot of concern about that. Um, but one of the other interesting things that's going to be neat to watch is we've got a lot of governorships also up for grabs. And we've got some great candidates at the state level. And especially during COVID, I think people realize that um, having the 
the breakdown of government like we have where the states have so much power really is important. And so um, we've seen states like California versus Florida, uh, New York versus Texas, and the quality of life for people, the freedoms that they've been able to have during COVID and then the recovery that they've had post-COVID um, has been dramatic, red states versus blue states. And so I think we're going to see some surprises at the state level as well as at the Senate level. We're watching places like New York, where we could possibly elect a Republican governor for the first time since Rudy Giuliani. Um, we're also looking at deep blue states like um, Oregon, where they may also elect a Republican governor for the first time in a long time. You've got backers like Phil Knight, um, the founder of Nike, who has put over a million dollars into the Republicans campaign. Not that he's a staunch Republican, but he knows that Republican, that Democrat policies in Oregon have failed and that Republican leadership is needed to get businesses and individuals back on the right track in places like Oregon. So I think there's going to be a lot of surprises on election night and it's, hopefully in all good ways. Well, it's interesting that these red waves seem to be an organic type thing coming from ordinary people. You never see it being posted up in the media, do, in the mainstream media, that is. Well, it's interesting because we're seeing cracks in the media now. And so Republicans have been talking along for a, the last several months about the, the trending tide toward them and the voter registration and the enthusiasm and the turnout that Republicans were seeing. And the Democrats have tried to suppress that, saying they're not going to be able to take these seats. They're not seeing the enthusiasm that um, the Republicans were talking about. But interestingly enough, when it comes this close to election time, all these pollsters actually want to keep keep their jobs and keep their credibility intact. So just within the last week, we're starting to see them say, well, the tide is turning and we're seeing some polling shifting and all of a sudden some of these seats are leaning right. And so they know it's coming. They've avoided it as long as they could. They were trying to talk it into reality and they couldn't do it. And so it'll be interesting to see how red next Tuesday is, but we certainly will pick up a lot of seats in the House. I believe we'll take the Senate and we're going to take a lot of governorships that current that previously have not been in play. What would be, if there is a red wave, what would be the consequence uh, here in Australia? How would we feel it here, Peggy? Well, I think that a strong America benefits our allies and benefits the world. And so I would love to see America get back on track with our economy, with jobs. You know, you realize even if we do take the House and the Senate, we still don't have the presidency. So in a lot of ways, we can maybe only tap the brakes on bad policies. We won't be able to right the ship completely. Um, but I think we could see some things take place that would lend to a stronger economy here in the U.S. and potentially then that would trickle over to the rest of the world. I would love to see America go back to a posture of energy independence to do more um, drilling in America instead of importing from all around the world, instead of getting on our knees and begging some of our enemies worldwide to give us oil when we have plenty ourselves. And so maybe we'll see some simple decisions like that that will have great effect worldwide. Peggy, just before you go, uh, can you tell me what you think about this attack on Paul Pelosi, the husband of the Democrat speaker, Nancy Pelosi? The attack in their San Francisco home was, uh, was violent, involved a hammer, and it was quite mysterious. It happened in the middle of the night. Uh, and the at alleged attacker is a pretty shady character. Now, the, what I want to ask you, though, Peggy, is that um, the media and some Democrats immediately tried to pin this on some sort of Trump supporter. They're pretty desperate, aren't they? They are. And his social media is kind of all over the place. And But he certainly could not be characterized as a MAGA Republican or anything like that. And of course, what happened to Paul Pelosi is horrific. Across both sides of the political aisle, people have been condemning it as they should. We all hope that he makes a full and complete recovery. But let's be honest about what has caused this rising crime in places like San Francisco and deep blue cities all across the nation. It's Democrat policies. It's 
catch and release of criminals. It's the open border, which has allowed illegals into this country who don't belong here, who don't wish to do good, but wish to do harm. And so in essence, Paul Pelosi is the latest in a long string of victims in San Francisco and other places resulting directly from Nancy Pelosi and her party's failed policies. And it's estimated that up to half the people in San Francisco have been victims of crime in one way or another since Joe Biden took office. And so every victim in San Francisco deserves a quick police response. Every victim in San Francisco deserves to have public outrage over them being victimized. And every victim in San Francisco deserves to have their perpetrator put and held behind bars like this person certainly will be. But we have a revolving door of crime that the Democrats have been complicit in. And so it's horrific what happened, but it's horrible what has happened to everyday San Franciscans without anybody paying attention to and without them making a pivot in these disastrous policies which have led to this crime increase all across the nation, especially in San Francisco. Indeed, the best thing that can happen for Paul Pelosi now is for his his wife to lose power in Washington. Peggy Grandy, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. That's our US correspondent, Peggy Grandy. And just before I go, I was going to say, spare a thought for King Charles this week. All his best friends are going to the COP27 climate gab fest in Egypt on Sunday. We're talking French President Emmanuel Macron, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, European Union Chief Ursula von der Leyen, Australian Anti-Energy Minister Chris Bowen, Special U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry and, of course, the U.S. President himself, Joe Biden. Not even the midterm elections at which his party might lose control of both houses of Congress could keep Biden away from the climate festivities and a chance to park his private jet next to, who knows, Leonardo DiCaprio or even U.N. Climate Ambassador and Supermodel Giselle Bundchen who only recently announced she's single again, although Joe would probably find her a bit old for his taste. Anyway, King Charles isn't allowed to go. Everyone knows he wants to go, but the busybody government won't let him. The Sunday Times of London reported last month, quote, the King, a passionate environmental campaigner, has abandoned plans to attend next month's COP27 climate change summit after Liz Truss told him to stay away. He had intended to deliver a speech at the meeting of world leaders in Europe. The Sunday Times continued, quote, continues, Truss, who is also unlikely to attend the Sharm el-Sheikh gathering, objected to the King's plans during a personal audience at Buckingham Palace, unquote. Well, if Truss's 45-day prime ministership is remembered for only one thing, let it be this, that she told Charles he was grounded from going to COP27. But Charles has found a way around it. If he can't go to COP27, then let COP27 come to him. He's told a select group of leaders to, to detour their private jets to Heathrow and jump in some limos for afternoon tea at the palace on their way to Egypt. It's the only way to save the planet from a climate catastrophe, you understand. Charles isn't the only POM who's been warned against going to the conference. New Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has also had to send his apologies. What with all the issues at home like soaring energy costs, inflation and a crisis in illegal migration. This has earned a stern rebuke from the enfant terrible of the climate caper, Greta Thunberg, who said, quote, the fact that one of the most powerful people in the world doesn't have time for this, it's very symbolic and says that they may have other priorities. Well, he sure does, kiddo. Like saving people from freezing in the dark because they can't afford to heat their homes. But what should monarchists in Australia make of Charles being so keen to attend? Tune in tomorrow night for my interview with David Flint, Australia's leading monarchist who I just know will have an eloquent explanation. Well, that's all from me. I'm sure you'll join me in wishing the great Alan Jones a speedy recovery from his medical issues. But for this week at least, Alan will be recuperating at home and I'll be filling the 8pm slot. 
Thanks for watching and I'll see you again tomorrow at 8. Good night.